Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Shearway. Today, we're talking about Bartlett for America. It's episode nine from season three. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by Tommy Schlamy, just like the pilot. But unlike the pilot, it first aired on December 12th, 2001. This episode was submitted for several Emmy Award nominations. Thomas Del Ruth was nominated for an Emmy for his cinematography. Lauren Schaefer was nominated for Outstanding Picture Editing. And John Spencer won Best Supporting Actor in part because of this episode. This episode is also part of the Emmy submission package for the West Wing's Outstanding Drama series win. Coming up later in this episode, we have something really special. We have an interview from 2002 with John Spencer, much of which has never been heard before, and we're going to get to present it to you for the first time later in this episode. Very special. It's a pretty great episode. It's the Christmas episode, and the Christmas episode on the West Wing is typically a standout. Every season so far, the text of it is so sentimental, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. No, it's beautifully written and acted, and we step back from what we've had in the last couple of episodes, which were wonkier and issue-heavy, and we get a real character piece. I mean, the characters, I think, are served and developed in every episode of the show. But an episode like this has a little bit more breathing room for a deeper dig down into one character, and it's Leo. And it's very well done. I like the time shifts. And I thought that 
this episode benefited from having a really, really long period where the show's ahead of the viewer. Yeah. In a kind of exciting way where we don't know exactly what's going on. I mean, this is something that Aaron does frequently to great effect. But here, there's really a long, slow reveal for us to catch up with essentially what Josh Lyman is trying to prevent for most of the episode. Don't start again. There are ways to get the guy out of the room. Hey, I'll keep my head here. You keep your head there. hmm? I used to do this for a living, Leo. The guy gets the floor for five minutes. I can get him out of the room. I think it also benefits from the fact that there are very few plot lines going on in this episode. It's really Leo's story. That tree has many branches, how he met the president for the first time and the campaign and the president's MS and how all these things relate and his own alcoholism. But it's really just one story. The only other thing that's happening is the story about black churches in Tennessee that are being threatened. And FBI agent Mike Casper, played by Clark Gregg, makes his return. Yes, a welcome return of Clark Gregg to our TV screens. I've known Clark for a really long time, and I love I love his physicality. He's got kind of a swagger and kind of a specificity to the way he moves that just is Clark. If I couldn't see his face but uh, saw only the silhouette of his body, I would be able to identify Clark <laughs> in a second from the way he moves. And then there's an extra element in his face, which is that there's always, I think, almost no matter what is happening on screen, there's a little sly smile to Clark. Yeah. That I really appreciate. Physically, he manages to sometimes be very still, but because of the expression on his face, it still seems like he's moving a mile a minute. And a sort of refreshing surprise to me in this episode was Aaron's writing him as being a bit daunted to be in the presence of the president. I mean, there's an (laughs) element, at the end, there's also an element of, this guy's a pro, we don't take curtain calls, so there's that. But there's clearly also an element of, no, I don't want to go in there, like, I'll just stay out here, (laughs) you know? There's a little bit, which is one of Aaron's favorite things to do, how do people deal with being in the same room as the most powerful person in the world or the, the president of the United States? And often they are, you know, we're reminded how comfortable the core staff is around him by seeing the discomfort of somebody who's a little bit newer or not used to or maybe never met him before. Hang on. This wall is curved. Yeah, let's go. I don't have to go in there. I can wait out here. (laughs) Yeah, right. I know where we are. That's a great line. (laughs) I love that we get a callback to this character. We get a callback to a few characters that we've met before in this episode. Mike Casper is just one of them. But I love that we get to bring him back. We met him for the first time in Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail. The only interaction that we really get is his contentious argument with Sam, where it turns out that he's actually right. But in the moment, it kind of seems like Agent Casper is being a jerk, because in the moment in the episode when they have that interaction, we're all on Sam's side. And it seems like, yeah, this guy's just stonewalling in order to preserve the reputation of the FBI. By the time we get to the end of the episode, it turns out... Sam's wrong and and Casper's right, but we never get to see him again, and he doesn't take a curtain call there. It's nice to bring him back and have him brought back in this sort of non-adversarial role. Yeah. I also thought as I watched, uh, this is the difference between a home game and an away game. And so we've seen Casper in his own lair where he really owns it. And then he's uh, at the White House, which is one of the biggest home field advantages in the world. <laughs> right. Did we talk about how much Agent Casper is a precursor for Agent Coulson? No, I don't know that we have, but certainly uh, 
You can see it. I'd like to think that the blueprint was in place for Clark Gregg's role as Agent Coulson in the S.H.I.E.L.D. movies and, I mean, in the uh, Marvel movies and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. from these episodes in The West Wing. If you're listening to this podcast episode, but you have not yet watched Bartlett for America, I would suggest that maybe you should watch Take Out the Trash Day just beforehand, rewatching that as a kind of appetizer for this one. It's the episode where we meet Congressman Bruno and they talk about the investigation into Leo and his addiction issues. You might also want to watch In the Shadow of Two Gunmen Part 2. So yeah, if you have some time and you want to watch a lot of West Wing. a lot of homework you're assigning during the episode. Watch Take Out the Trash Day, In the Shadow of Two Gunmen Part 2, and then watch this episode. Then you'll get a really nice, I think like a little super West Wing experience. But yes, so we met Congressman Bruno for the first time there. That's uh, James Handy, who plays Congressman Joseph Bruno. We get a nice little uh, parade of familiar faces in this episode with the hearings. Actually, I had a question about Congressman Bruno's name, because his name is Congressman Joseph Bruno, but then at one point he gets called Phil. Gets called Phil? (laughs) Yeah. Congressman Gibson, when Cliff and Gibson and Bruno are in the back room and, and Cliff has that amazing line of, I will resign this committee and wait in the tall grass for you, Congressman, because you are killing the party. Who the hell is this? You don't have to make up your mind right now, Phil. You don't have to make up your mind. That's inexplicable. Yeah. (laughs) So Joseph Phil Bruno, played by um, James Handy. He comes back. And you know who else comes back? Mrs. Landingham. Yes. Just like a knife through the heart. When we go into the flashback and we're in the governor's office, of course, Mrs. Landingham would be there. Of course. And there she is. And it is like, there's some visceral shock that I felt seeing her. I agree. Although I appreciated that Aaron resisted what might have been the urge to make a meal of it. Right. In other words, we just get a little slice of what their life was like together. And we see that their relationship was largely (laughs) uh, what we came to know it to be when he became president. Speaking of crusty New England relics. Governor, does it frustrate you to constantly aim for humoring it miss so dramatically? Nah. It's just a nice, refreshing little dose of Mrs. Lanningham, whom we've missed. So it cuts, but he doesn't try to do that. He doesn't have her say anything or have some interaction that, you know, has great significance knowing what we know. Or he just lets it breathe for a moment. Yeah, it somehow hits harder because it is exactly what we'd experienced before. The president making a wise crack at her, and then she takes him down a peg. The only thing that's different is that instead of calling him Mr. President, she calls him governor. Right. Speaking of guest stars in this episode, and in the governor's office, I was really excited to see Carlos Jacot. Yes, I was. Oh, really? I know Carlos a little bit. How do you know of him? I'm a big fan of his, primarily from Noah Baumbach's first movie, Kicking and Screaming. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just liked him in everything that I've seen him in. He was also fantastic in Being John Malkovich when he plays John Malkovich's agent. Yes, he's a terrific actor. Yeah. He was on a show called She Spies. Yes, of which I did one episode. And in the first season, the show was very campy and kind of silly. That's when I was on it. <laughs> you know, at one point I'm on screen, I think Barry Bostwick was the governor and I was an aide of his and they sort of flashed my resume and the final one was like, looks like that guy from Sports Night or something like that. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was that level of silly. And I I believe I had some sort of, uh, 
I think I fought a guy with a sword, but I had a loaf of bread. And like, yeah, it was pretty silly. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to do, though. I don't care what anyone says. Hollywood is a magical place full of magical people, and they deserve all the awards they give themselves. I really enjoyed that show, and I'm sure I saw that episode and was probably, at the moment, really thrilled to see you in it. Especially at that time, you and Carlos Jacot both really loomed large in my mind as my favorite guys. So It's hard to imagine such a time, but I'll, I'll just I'll take you at face value. <laughs> it's really, really true. But so Carlos Jacot's scene, correct me if I'm wrong, they're pitching the president leaf peeping. We've got an aggressive strategy. Yeah. The Office of Travel and Tourism is going to run print ads throughout New England, encouraging people to drive here and view the fall foliage. Oh, oh slow down. You're going too fast. Yeah, I made the same connection. I thought, oh, <laughs> it's a callback, but then nobody said it. But nobody said leaf peeping. Yeah. But still, you know, the president earlier said... Leaf peeping? Is that something we do now? And at the right. time when we had come across that early in the podcast, we were like, come on, governor from New Hampshire, obviously he knows about leaf peeping, or he ought to know about leaf peeping. And I feel like in some ways, this was a subtle correcting of the record. Well, I took it as more of like an Easter egg. Like, this is why he doesn't know about peeping. He's not really listening to these two guys. <laughs> I like that I mean, interpretation. That's I thought, better. Or uh, it was retconning, I thought. As, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Now I get it. He had a chance to learn all about leaf peeping and to embrace it and uh, didn't do so. Yeah. There's something so tragic about this episode in general, just the way that time is used, like showing Mrs. Landingham in a very mundane way and a mundane mention by the president that, you know, Jenny and Mallory are okay. He says to Leo and Leo says, yeah, you know, like these things that have, that we know now that have ended tragically, but they don't right. know it yet. There's this dramatic irony to it and it's makes it so much more poignant. Of course, it's very powerful, but it, it's helpful that it's used as a throwaway rather than exactly trying to lay something significant on us or more significant. Let me ask you this. So Leo arrives to pitch Jed on taking a run at the presidency. And at first, Bartlett thinks Leo is pitching himself. Who is Leo at the point that we see him walk into the governor's office? He is a former secretary of labor. You know, that was his highest uh, credentialed position. Right. Because it's interesting. I don't know if it's out of friendship. I was trying to figure out. Leo, I swear to God. There's no one I'd rather see in the Oval Office than you, but if you run, there's going to be a lot of discussion about Valium and alcohol. I mean, it's... It seems to make sense to him that maybe Leo would consider this for himself. Yeah, I think, you know, he was... Um, we've heard him described as a big player in the in the Democratic Party. I think when we, when we were in, in the shadow of two gunmen. The thing that struck me most about this scene is the revelation that Leo's saliva has some sort of preternatural adhesive quality. Leo seems to be like part frog. He just kind of licks. <laughs> he just lightly licks a napkin and it just adheres to that piece of wood. Because of knowing how poignant the napkin ends up being, I tend to gloss over the kind of gross... <laughs> aspect of him licking the thing and then sticking it to an easel with his spit. Yeah. Well, there are two aspects for me. One is it was kind of gross and it reminded me of my great aunt Jean, may she rest in peace, who would kind of lick and, you know, clean your face with it. Lick her finger. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Let me get that. There's a little bit of that. And then it was just the remarkable adhesive quality of his saliva it was really like, wow, that shit works. Yeah. I wanted him maybe to turn around, <laughs> turn around at the end of the scene, shoot his tongue out and take the napkin back with it. <laughs> 
we know he was in the military. Maybe he was a frogman. <laughs> nice. Tiffle. <laughs> <laughs> that said, now that I've ruined the moment, mm-hmm. it is beautiful what Leo has written. I like, it's simple, but I like that it's Bartlett for America. It, you know, it's a subtle distinction between, hey, you know, Bartlett for president, and this is the right thing. Like, you're the right guy yeah. to do what needs to be done for our country. It's just, there's so much, just in this subtle, simple wording of it, there's a feeling of hope and energy and a movement that we know that all our heroes are going to get caught up in. I, just, I like that that's the way he chose to articulate the run. Yeah. And speaking of our heroes getting caught up in it, you know, we go for more than 16 minutes into this episode before we ever see Sam, CJ, or Toby. And they only appear in this episode in flashback during the um, the days of the campaign, which I thought was a mm-hmm. really neat way of separating the two timelines and also separating possible conflicts with uh, CJ's hairstyles. Mm, see, I thought it was just that Brad looked so old that they knew they, they knew they had to keep him out of the flashbacks because it just wouldn't look right. I wrote, CJ has flashback hair. Yeah, indeed she does. I love in their first scene when they're throwing the basketball around how impatient CJ was to get the ball back from Toby. Yes, their physicality is very funny there. Yeah, he's like teaching her how to throw a chest pass. But and every time she lets go of the ball, she's just like, she's got her fingers beckoning, give it back to me, give it back to me. I love that. And you can tell that Toby was really into it as well. That He loved how impatient she was for it too. Yes. And I'm going to give you my small quibble with that scene. Okay. Which is that it's very funny when she just heaves the ball through the window. Yeah. But they don't really react like people that just <laughs> threw a ball through a pane of glass. I mean, out into the street shattered and you know, it's like can we get an intern over here and then they continue the discussion <laughs> right. which it's funny but it actually made me think of another moment and another sorkin work that i've also always felt funny but i don't really buy it there's a scene in the american president uh-huh. when the girl at the flower shop the young woman is uh, behind the counter and like kind of not really paying attention because she's on the phone and then she kind of does a double take, realizes it's the president of the United States. And then she does just literally falls over on her back. Like she faints cold. <laughs> and then he just has a line. Does any of this ring a bell? Same girl. She remembered me. Instead of yeah. saying, oh, my God, this girl just split her head open. Get, get an ambulance. Somebody call 911. <laughs> it's like, I get it. It's funny. But like, if somebody really cold fainted on the floor... <laughs> You'd have to respond to what just happened. It would be a medical emergency. And yeah. I think there's a, I feel like there's a similar element to that when throwing the ball through the window. I think they would <laughs> deal with it immediately rather than continue their conversation. I think that moment in the movie also kind of ties into the butterball hotline when the president says that I am just a citizen. Oh, yeah. There's this scene of him ordering it on the phone, trying to right. order them on the phone. They don't believe him. Uh, perhaps it'd be better if you bill me for the flowers. I'm sure it'll be all right with your boss. Well, I don't know if you recognize my voice, but uh, this is the president of the United States. Hello? Some listeners had pointed out the uh, parallels between the butterball hotline and the flower ball hotline. So it's funny that you happen to remember that scene for a totally different reason here. Yeah. Leo is asked in the hearing when he met 
the president, and he says, We met for the first time about 32 years ago, but I would say our friendship began 11 years ago. But this is what I'm talking about. Aaron needs to write this show when they met for the first time 32 years ago. That's the moment I want to see in 1968 or 69, whatever it is. You know, I want it to start in 1968. They do not know each other yet. The president, Fitz, and Leo are on their separate paths and then show how their paths intersect at various points. Again, we see how amazing a flashback, these moments in the past, how poignant they are when we know how the future is going to turn out. I want to see that. Rishi, qualitatively, it's a wonderful idea but ultimately it doesn't get me work. <laughs> and Scandal is ending in a season. Yeah, I don't think, I, ca I can't exist in, uh, Will Bailey can't exist in the 68 version of West Wing. Mm. That's a problem. So Double keep thinking. Roll. It's a great Double pitch, if, but keep wait, thinking. Wait, I have it. What if you play Will Bailey's father? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think he, he's too accomplished for me to play. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he looks that much like me. I think he could do it. I think that, that that's how you work it work it in. One more moment about that scene with the basketball. Um, it's yes. in that scene that Sam, Toby, and Josh are discussing what Governor Bartlett needs to do in order to make clear how serious he is, I guess, about the run. And I think CJ says... We'll release his tax returns, put all his stocks in the blind trust. Because <laughs> that's how you know somebody's serious about being the president. Ay, ay, ay. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, that was just a complete, like, well, we certainly have to do this. I know. How quaint. Mm -hmm. That's just what you do, Josh. If you didn't, it would just be unrealistic. No, you couldn't. Uh, nobody would be elected mm -hmm. had he not or she not done those things. And for that matter, the medical information, too, is considered to be of utmost importance to share. Right. Or at least, the you know, he has to have a physical and uh, so... He asks Abby, what's going to show? What are they going to find? Right. And this is really the first on-screen evidence that we really get of deception. What's a physical right now going to show? It'll, uh, nothing. I'm, you're in remission. I'm not lying to anybody, Abby. I'm taking a physical. This is no inadvertent sin of omission. Right. They are very calculatedly leaving out the whole truth. It, yes, it's intentional, but it's more, again, yeah, you're right. It's that um, not how do I falsify the tests? What's going to show if I do this? Right. You know, am I going to be able to go undetected? Yeah. And I thought it was neat that in a totally different context in this scene, you have that reverend who's talking to them about the church bombings. He says, a sin of omission by any other name. Mm -hmm. Kind of like when they were tying in big tobacco into the deception. You know, the, there are these uh, little refrains here and there that pop up to underscore the severity of, of what's going on in the rest of their lives. Yeah, good point. There was one thing that the president said in, in relation to the uh, bombings, which were in Tennessee. He's talking to the governor of Tennessee, and he says, Because of due respect, Mr. President, but you do it without my consent, and it's a clear violation of states' rights. And you would have said the same thing when you were the governor of New Hampshire. This doesn't happen in New Hampshire. You got a pretty big black population in New Hampshire, do you? What I would absolutely call the president out on separately is uh, there might not be a lot of um, black people in New Hampshire, but there certainly are a lot of white supremacists. Indeed. And I've met some of them, and it wasn't very <laughs> nice. 
and as a lifelong New Hampshireite, he really should know know about the clan and New Hampshire. They go, they've got a long shared history. Right. He has a line later about pleasing the blacks in your state, which I thought uh-huh. sat a little strangely. It may well be realistic that he would say that kind of thing, but it was a weird moment. Yep. Another weird throwaway line was um, Agent Casper saying to uh, Donna, "Listen, churches are burning down. Otherwise, I'd be hitting on you." I appreciate that. Sure. Maybe when it's rough. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Were you yeah. saying rough, period, come on? Or were you saying that was a rough come on? <laughs> You're right. You know, punctuation is so important. Yeah, it's a rough come on. <laughs> There's on about nine different levels. One, something important really is happening. <laughs> so don't stop to say things like that. And two, do you think she was sitting around feeling slightly offended because you hadn't hit on her yet? Like, dude. Yeah. There's a lot, you know, there's, uh, you know, there are a few more moments like that in this episode. There's, I think in the cold open, President Bartlett is sort of in and out of paying attention to what's going on on C-SPAN and his wife is being questioned. And there's a lot of um, the things we do to women. Yeah. And I don't, I, that line may be well, good and, you know, true to Bartlett. And it felt like something he might say. And in fact, it is something he said but i thought what is it sometimes we treat them like men (laughs) i mean you know yeah she's being questioned it's both uh yeah reduces their own sense of agency i knew i could get you to say agency (laughs) you could have just asked me uh, thereby preserving your own sense of agency where my casper works (laughs) oh you're good damn Um, you're good as we were getting ready to record this episode i got a note from margaret our editor and she said when you recap this episode can you please discuss what a horrible way this is to ask a woman on a date and advise your listeners not to emulate it thanks in advance (laughs) this being leo and jordan yeah so i thought rather than us just talk about it ourselves we should just get margaret to talk about it because you know agency yeah let's do it hi margaret hi rishi so let's talk about leo and jordan Well, when I saw him ask her out, I was especially horrified because it was happening at a time when she like had no way to escape and no way to say no. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because she's on camera. Yeah, she's on camera. She's basically trying to do her job. Right. And, you know, it's a situation where if she even so much as makes a horrified face, it will be captured by national television. And she's very direct about it. So what are you saying about dinner? I'm not kidding around. She's very clear, and he does not listen. People do that to women in the service industry all the time. So I actually, um, I shared with my feminist Facebook group that I was going to be doing this (laughs) and asked them to share their stories. And a lot of people have experienced this where they're working at a call center and the guy on the other end of the line won't stop talking about how pretty their voice is and just things that men would never get in the line of doing their job. This is kind of that taken to the extreme where... Yes, she's a high-powered lawyer, and yet she's basically being treated as there for his dating fun. From the beginning, where President Bartlett says, you know, what's she wearing? That's the thing President Bartlett wants to know about your lawyer. Mm. And the thing that makes it complicated is the president is like, I like you guys together. You're like a 50s screwball comedy. And it's like, I, you, <laughs> right. we do like them together. Yeah, I think they're a fine couple. I have no problem if they start dating. I just hate that 
Leo is getting rewarded for what is basically like a horrible way to ask someone out to put her on the spot while she's working. And then the result is, oh, hey, it worked. What a, what a great. That's true. What a great strategy, Leo. It did work. Yeah. <laughs> this is a trope that's being deconstructed more and more often now where if you just keep asking, like if you just are persistent, then eventually a girl will say yes to you. Like guy pursues girl, she's like hard to get, but then eventually she falls for him and it all works out. Yeah, exactly. And that's why my takeaway message would be, please guys, don't emulate Leo when you ask someone out. It works on the West Wing and it works on a lot of other TV shows, but it is not fun for the women in real life. An excellent point. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for chiming in. I appreciate it. It's nice to hear your actual voice on the podcast. I mean, you're a big part of every episode, but usually in ways that people can't detect as you (laughs) edit and uh, keep Josh and me from sounding like uh, idiots. Well, I trust that you will do the same for me. (laughs) Good deal. Bye, Rishi. Bye. Good points. Yes. And I suspect that before this podcast is over, Margaret will replace one or both of us. (laughs) She can have my job. If I could somehow make this podcast without having to speak on it, I, I would. Oh, you've said that to me before, which shocks <laughs> me. You know that I'm the sidekick, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I've thought that recently. Like, I'm not sure he knows. Certainly all the listeners know. You're the driving force. You are the big thinker. You are clearly more organized than I. You know the show better. You certainly are able to link to find the bigger themes like well i'm i'm you know focusing on wow that extra is running way too fast <laughs> uh, while you're parsing the themes great and small so I, I i always surprises me when you say that you would like to if you could remove your voice from the <laughs> podcast you would because you realize it would just it would be just me and it would be a disaster i feel like you are making us out to be sort of like uh i'm gary shandling and you're jeffrey tambor on larry sanders show but i think of us more like you're gary shandling and i'm rip torn <laughs> that's how i i see our dynamic i see i hope there are some larry sanders viewers that's, out there who will understand that dynamic <laughs> wait josh were you on larry sanders I was. I played yeah. two different characters on Larry Sanders. That's right. I knew uh, as soon as I started saying it, some other distant bell in, in the back of my head that was right next to the bell that rang when we were talking about She Spies also rang. See, this is what I'm talking about. You have lived in my conscious and subconscious for so long. Oh, by the way, we haven't gotten to her yet, but obviously another prominent guest star in this episode is Joanna Gleason. Right. Does she ring any musical bells? I guess all bells are musical, but does she ring any for you? Uh, no. She was into the woods. There you go. Is that the one? Well, she's done a multiplicity of musicals. I think she was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on Broadway and Nick and Nora. But famously, she was the original Baker's wife on Broadway in Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. Again, Aaron loves to pull guest stars from the world of theater. I mean, Joanna Gleason has done a lot of film and TV as well. Yes, quite an accomplished actor. And she's great and such a formidable, fantastic character. Again, like just leaps off the screen fully formed with just a few sentences. And I think our Margaret makes a very good point. It's very easy to root for them. As a couple. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I can see why she sent that email worried that perhaps, I mean, I think we would have commented anyway, on Leo's approach. But it would be easy to ignore 
some of the ickiness involved because they're both pretty winning. Right. And they are good together, and there is good chemistry. You want to go and get breakfast or something? No. Breakfast is my favorite meal to eat out. I love tomato juice. They're waiting for us, Leo. They can wait. No, they really can. Yeah, they really can. And you do want Leo to have a date. I mean, the man deserves a date. Oh, certainly by the end of the episode. I mean, again, this is one of the things, I mean, obviously you've seen this episode many times. I watch everything with fresh yeah. eyes. So it ain't nothing but a family thing. I was like, oh, I'm, I, I didn't know what, that, what the payoff on that was going to yeah. be by the end. So that was a great little thing that Aaron weaved in that really uh, pays off emotionally. And there's something particularly touching too about Leo's scoring the date and then saying you want to do it tomorrow night instead what's tomorrow night it's christmas eve in other words you know that's a night i really don't want to be alone and maybe fight the urge to drink i felt was a part of the unspoken Mm -hmm. plea i thought another unspoken element in that part was him maybe not being up for a date after the incredible emotional toll that that day had taken on him. You know, he's playing it really kind of cavalier in all things, you know, making Congress people wait because he thinks they're being annoying and he wants to annoy them back a little bit. And he's just, he's riffing with Jordan the whole time. But then that final moment when the president gives him the napkin and then he just finally lets his emotions break, you know, then you're really like, yeah, this probably not a good night for a date for Leo. Yeah, you're right. It's almost an entire episode of stoic, brave-faced Leo. And I love that they gave him that little moment at the end to let the air out. Yeah, it really broke my heart as many times as I've seen this episode. I haven't seen it in a few, I haven't seen it in a while. And that part made me cry. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Yeah, well, it's a stupendous piece of writing. And John is an exquisite actor. He's one of those people... He's as compelling at rest as when he's <laughs> actually speaking. You know, the, even the episode opens with a sort of darkly lit silhouette profile of Leo and something even just in his body and his body language that's compelling. There's, you know, there's yeah. certain people who always draw your eye to them. Obviously, the camera often tells us whom to look at, but in a scene with multiple people, I often find myself being drawn to Leo and to John's performance because there's just so much going on there, subtly. You mentioned the camera work. I was going to ask you if you felt like something in the visuals of this episode changed from what has come before it. To me, it seemed like there was this step up in image quality. I don't know exactly why it feels like this episode more than previous episodes this season. Oh, that's interesting. I couldn't tell you quantitatively what the difference is. I don't know or that there is any. I always feel just when whenever they get out of the White House more often, I feel like just the visuals open up. There's a greater variety. There's new kinds of lighting. There's different environments mm-hmm. for them to be in. I just, uh, right. I always appreciate that. I'm like, okay, the, the world's opening up a little bit. It can get a little bit claustrophobic in the same yeah. hallways and in the same offices. And I, I like to see them in new locales. You know, oh, there's an outside even. Look, it's snowing. I enjoy 
when the show opens up altogether. But I'd be, I'd be interesting to find that. I think you might be onto something because the moment when I wrote that down and when it really struck me the most were those moments when Leo is in the uh, waiting room at Congress in the break and before the hearing when he's framed by that window. And it's just maybe it's just that I'm responding to the fact that it's a different look or it's a different room and it's still, it gives them the chance to do this, take those kind of rich production values and put them in another setting. And just the fact that I'm seeing something new. Maybe that's what I was responding yeah. to. Well, my guess is too, it allows the um, people on the technical side and the crew to open up and flex some muscles. I'm sure they enjoy the opportunity and Thomas Delruth likes to get to light new areas and new places and new rooms and do a little bit more than the sort of set lighting palette that within which the more limited palette within which he has to work in our familiar surroundings. Right, because they have to actively make sure that people recognize that this isn't the White House. Right. I didn't know when I was watching and when I made that note about the sumptuousness that he was nominated for uh, an Emmy for this episode. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah, of course. Does make sense. So how about um, seeing Leo, whom we've come to know as just an absolute rock for the president and really anybody else on the staff and the guy who keeps things running smoothly and on course, seeing him raiding the minibar and, you know, out of it in bed when he's supposed to be at the debate. I mean, it's really, it's painful to watch. Yeah. I felt like for the first time, the audience was kind of confronted by the demons that have only been mentioned kind of in an off-screen way. Right. Things things that I have imagined, but not put specific images to. And there's some there's so much pressure to that too. You know, it's sort of like in horror movies where the, the moment where you see the monster, it suddenly becomes less scary because it was it was actually more frightening when when it was just sounds and music and the implication of a monster. And then when you actually see the effects, you're like, oh, okay, that, that's what it looks like. Huh. Um, but here, they managed to execute it in a way where the where the reality of it really did live up to the tragedy that he talks about in Take Out the Trash Day and, and other, you know, sort of glancing mentions of his addiction issues. Yeah, and, by, and through Leo, Aaron speaks so eloquently and genuinely about addiction Mm-hmm. It's striking. I mean, Leo knows what he's dealing with, and he sort of lays it out kind of so clinically for Jordan. I'm an alcoholic. I don't have one drink. I don't understand people who have one drink. I don't understand people who leave half a glass of wine on the table. I don't understand people who say they've had enough. How can you have enough of feeling like this? How can you not want to feel like this longer? My brain works differently. Right. I definitely credit this episode with educating me in that regard, too. I didn't really know anything about the reality of addiction when I was watching this for the first time and hearing that articulation of, like, this is what it really means. It completely changed my perspective of it because um, it did seem to me like the kind of thing that happens to people who were, you know, lacked willpower or discipline or something like that. And I really appreciate this episode. And she does start to lay into him in the very judge, you know, how can you be so stupid? I think is what she said. How could you? Right. And, you know, and he just sort of, without anger, lays it out for her and yeah. educates her and with her, us. And the moment too, when Leo takes the drink, finally, he takes the, the Johnny Walker blue. He's like, give me a sip of that. 
your heart breaks because you know this isn't what he wants to do. Some core part of him, he doesn't want to take the drink. And the performance, you see his hand shakes a little bit, just ever so slightly before he's taken the drink as he's like lifts the glass up to his lips. Yeah, it's a great piece of physical acting. It's incredible. No, and you have the same moment too, which is, no, why are you doing that? No, no, don't do it. And again, it's not about that. It's not why or how or didn't he know and it's that's addiction you just you're seeing it at that moment yeah were you a fan of mitch hedberg comedian mitch hedberg yes mm-hmm. sure but alcoholism is a disease but it's like the only disease that you can get yelled at for having <laughs> damn it otto you're an alcoholic damn it otto you have lupus well said mitch hedberg who sadly died way too young from an overdose exactly he was incredible. There's a line that kind of flits by almost offhandedly because the actual punchline is so powerful. But in the first exchange between Josh and Leo over the phone, Leo says, don't help me. And Josh says, I'm going to help you. You know why? Leo says, because you walk around with so much guilt about everybody you love dying that you're a compulsive fixer. And you can't really even sit and kind of marinate in that line and how heavy and how complex all those things are that he's just said because then josh comes back and says no no because a guy was walking down the street and he falls in a hole see you have this call back to noel and that incredible moment between the two of them that's a beautiful callback i don't know if it counts as an easter egg but um if you hadn't seen noel you would have no idea what he's talking about there but uh, it's a beautiful callback but as a result What do you think of this line? You walk around with so much guilt about everybody you love dying that you're a compulsive fixer. Yeah, I was also knocked out by that quick lightning bolt insight as to how well these guys know each other. They don't bring out this kind of personal stuff very often, but they've got it right at their fingertips. They've read each other completely. Yeah, These are people who know each other intimately. It's funny to think about Josh being this guy who's a compulsive fixer and Leo sort of trying to get the president to run, the things that these say about their personalities. But yeah, you know, like, it's a rare moment where one character's psychology is just laid out in very bare terms. We know this about Josh, his sister died, his father died. And we know how loyal he is, how like fiercely loyal, sometimes to a fault, sometimes in ways that make him make poor decisions because of his like fierce loyalty. And now suddenly Leo is just like, and this is why. It is a rare moment. And also, um, I don't know if it changes my, my sense of Josh or it changes the audience's sense of Josh in that moment, but it, it really uh, deepens it, I think. Yes, I agree with you. But also one of the things that struck me too is that it doesn't knock Josh out <laughs> to be read so completely like that in one sentence from Leo. He knows that yeah. he knows and like, okay, you're going to play that, but no, I'm going to, I've got, I've got a response and I've got it immediately. Exactly. He's like, I've got, he's like, I can parry that no problem because here's what I've got on the, in the other hand. Right. Cliff Cowley, his stock shoots up in this episode after taking yeah. uh, some hits on the exchange. We get our moment of like, oh, it's kind of his, uh, he's one of us moments. Spoiler alert. It's just like, we we realize he's, (laughs) he's also a hero. Like, boy, does he do the right thing. Yeah. And he does it in classic Sorkin fashion. I like it. This is Bush League. This is why good people hate us. This right here, this thing. This isn't what these hearings are about. He cannot possibly have been properly prepared by counsel for these questions, nor should he ever have to answer them publicly. 
this is the utmost in West Wing fantasy, that not only is it our team in the White House that is high-minded and principled and like believes in America as an ideal over petty partisanship, even their opponents feel the same way. Right. I wrote down, where's that Republican? <laughs> yeah. Hello? Hello? Are there any, are there any Cliff Callies out there now? Watching this and seeing how an investigation that's supposed to be about whether or not the president committed a fraud or, or conspired against to deceive the American people about his MS, you know, they end up being able to take that opportunity to really do a character assassination potentially of Leo. Watching that, I kept thinking about Sally Yates' testimony on the congressional hearings into Russian interference in the election and the insane tangents and byroads that were taken by different Republican members who were just trying to like stir up dust here or there sure. or here or there in areas that had absolutely nothing to do. Yeah, just complete uh, that, that misdirection. Really have fallen under the purview. Yeah, that you'd think that the purview of a, a case, if it were a normal court, the way you understand it is that there is like a scope of a hearing and you have a judge who can sustain objections to people going too far afield, They're talking about things that have no re relevance. But when it's a congressional hearing, you can say, oh, this is our reason over here, but we're going to talk about something else entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, these congressional hearings become political theater. But I also appreciated that it wasn't just, you know, they also showed the side of, you know, that they're friendlies in the hearing as well. And so, you know, Leo gets some softballs. And of course, that happens too. They get their two minutes and they're going to do what they can to help your cause. Right. What about uh, Hoyne's scene? Hoyne's Bartlett? The part that was most surprising to me was they go to the scene where they all decide, yes, they're in agreement about Hoynes. Leo opens the door. He's right there waiting to be invited in. Hoynes. He comes in and the president says, I'd like you to be vice president. And Hoynes's reaction he has like a reaction of surprise, which I thought was surprising. Like, yeah, what, he looked, what did he, he looked think floored. that meeting was going to happen? Yeah. Well, this is my assumption, because I was struck by that moment as well. My assumption is that we, we've grown used to knowing well before the convention who the VP pick is of each candidate. So I have the feeling this was one of those uh, rare times. Apparently, since 1980, it's only happened twice that the VP pick was made at the convention, which is super dramatic. But still, you're being invited into the suite of the guy who just got nominated. I mean, maybe did he think that it was going to be, it's just like a, hey, good game? <laughs> I don't know. But I also definitely think you're right. I didn't know this about running mates being chosen at the convention. I didn't know that there was that history and reality. I'm so used to running mates being chosen before the convention that that part kind of slipped past me. Right. So thanks for pointing that out. I also like at the end of that scene. I'd like your answer now, John. You'll have it when I give it, Jed. And again, this is another like little thing in the flashback where just like Mrs. Landingham calling him governor instead of Mr. President, points here also calling him Jed instead of Mr. President. You know, it's just this without drawing like a ton of attention to it, without talking around it, having the script reflect this is a different time. And in this different time, things were so different. And you can see yeah. it just in the evidence of one word. Very palpable difference. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I also, the, what's interesting is he's having a little bit of the reaction that some, I guess, of the public will have upon discovering that Bartlett has MS, which is, he feels ripped off. Did you just tell me that you have MS? Yeah. Which you never mentioned during the campaign. Yeah. 
you know, he can point specifically to what he's lost as a result of this sin of omission. You know, he seems to be thinking, I might be the candidate. Right. So it's a little window into what, into the enormity of what I guess Bartlett has chosen to do. This really doesn't get said here, but thinking about the sort of admirable qualities of Cliff Cowley, Hoynes really, you know, here he's posed as an adversary and and maybe not even a nice guy. But you have to extrapolate that here he is, the president told him this information. He could have gone back out onto the floor and been like, hey, guys, I have some information that may you may want to change your mind about who you're nominating for president. Absolutely. No, I think you almost see it play out in his mind a little bit. Like, what the f***? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me think about this. And I like that he leaves pissed. Yeah. But we know... Again, we know that he didn't do that. He didn't out the president. He didn't torpedo the, his nomination in, in favor of trying to get nominated himself, which uh, you can imagine any number of real-life politicians doing that instead. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There's a little linguistic moment that I appreciated, too, which is when Hoynes um, sort of somewhat snidely says, But I suppose you're trusting me as consolation prize enough. I was delighted that he used the possessive with a gerund rather than saying, I suppose you trusting me is consolation prize enough. Many people make that mistake, and it grates on the ear. <laughs> Here's a beautiful piece of writing, I thought. Leo's made out of leather. His face has a map of the world on it. Leo comes back. I wrote those two lines down, too. Yeah. There's also, again, it happens so quickly, but there's a part where Leo is describing... Um, I know where you're going with this. He's describing to Jordan the scene when the president collapses. He goes to the debate site to walk it, and he's just talking about the president, and there's so much love in his voice, and he what says... Do? That's the president. He sees it as a genuine opportunity to change minds, also as his best way of contributing to the team. He likes teams. I love him so much. I wrote that down. I wrote, it's so simple and sweet. Yeah. I mean, you hear it again this is like just peeling back the layer in, in to reveal something like basic that in a poor writer's hands would be basic writing but this is a the thing that never really happens like you hear leo talk about the president all the time you talk to and he talks to the president and the implication of his love is so palpable but it never gets to the point where he says the president is like this he does this he does this i love him so much yeah. That doesn't get said. And then when it's used sparingly here, it is like devastating. Yeah. Well, that's it's very well put. That's a line that any of us could write. But Aaron's capable of such incredibly complex writing, and he knows when to pull back and just throw out a simple sentence like that, and then it just sucker punches you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was worried that we would not have a lot to talk about with this episode because I think it's so great. And I feel like there's sometimes it's hard to talk about something where you're like, yeah, that moment was perfect. That moment was perfect. <laughs> and then 20 minutes go by and you're like, all right, well, yep, it was a great episode. But clearly there is like, there is so much depth to this episode. There, There is a lot to talk about. I have one other tiny little thing. We barely mentioned uh, Sam Seaborn or Rob Lowe, which I guess is another reflection of the fact that he has been largely written out in the last few episodes of the more significant storylines. 
Yeah. Interestingly. Um, and we can hypothesize. You know, I've heard all sorts of stories about what was going on maybe behind the scenes between Aaron and Rob. And there's some sort of conflict there, I think. And it seems like it is the end result is his a diminished role for Sam, at least in the last few episodes. One thing I did notice, there's a moment where Josh has come to Sam for help in getting a contact who can get to Gibson and somehow pull him out of the room. And Sam takes out a kind of day planner, like Rolodex kind of book. Uh-huh. And it's filled with little scribbles and post-its and an incredible amount of information. And it looks like the kind of day planner that Sam Seaborn would have. And I just thought, wow, it's on screen for about four seconds. And the properties department, you know, somebody put in hours of work into this fantastic prop. Right. Yeah. Uh, I made a mistake. I misspoke when I said that Sam only appears in flashback. Toby. Oh, right. Because he's in that. uh... Because he's in that scene. Yeah. It's just, it's Toby and CJ who are only in the uh, flashbacks. I really like actually one of the scenes with Sam and Josh, where Josh is asking him to get the guy out of the room the first time, and Sam doesn't know what it's for. And he starts off kind of jovial. Sam's kind of joking around, and he's laughing. And by the end of the scene, even though Sam doesn't know what Josh needs, they end up on the same page emotionally. Because Sam starts talking about that moment from the flashback, and he's like, he's kind of lost in memory, this like pleasant memory from the campaign. But Josh is like fixated on trying to get Darren Gibson out of the room. And Sam slowly, throughout those like few lines, comes around, and by the end, he's like, What's Gibson got? You'll get a guy for me? Yeah. And Sam doesn't press it, he doesn't ask him. He understands, and he just says, Yeah, Sam gets it. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll present to you this interview with John Spencer from 2002. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial, and then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. And now back to the show. John Spencer won an Emmy for his performance in Bartlett for America, and we're so thrilled to present an interview with John Spencer to go along with our discussion. And joining us now is the man who conducted this interview, David Daniel, senior producer at CNN. David, thanks so much for joining us. And can you tell us when and where did this interview take place? It's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm an avid listener as much as I was an avid viewer of the series. The interview actually took place on the set uh, in the Roosevelt Room. This was about 10 days before 
the Emmys in 2002, almost 15 years ago. I had set it up because, you know, as every good West Wing fan knew at that point, getting the A storyline in the Christmas episode meant you were going to win Best Supporting Actor. (laughs) You know, the first season we had Excelsis Deo with Richard Schiff, and he won the Emmy. And then the second year, of course, was Noel with Bradley Whitford, and he won the Emmy. So... I don't know if two makes a trend, but it certainly had by that point. Let the historical record reflect that I, as Will Bailey, never received the A-plot in the Christmas episode. (laughs) Otherwise, you might have interviewed me at some point. And this is why, you know, that that Emmy has still eluded you. If if, if only you had had that A-subplot, then it would have been yours. So in what form did your interview actually air? It was about a three-minute story, all told, with about four different sound bites with John and, and clips from Bartlett for America, as well as from the previous two Christmas episodes. But I, uh, I, I kept it because obviously I was a huge fan. I was a poster, a regular poster on television without pity and the West Wing board there. I'm pretty sure John Spencer had never been interviewed by a fan before. And he really seemed to delight in it. I was just about to say he had a twinkle in his voice in this interview. So the edited piece that you made was around three minutes. So the raw audio that we're about to play, is it right to say that much of this has never been heard before? The only place it has been heard is in the second year of the West Wing uh, Television Without Pity convention. Well, thank you so much. And and thank you to your bosses as well at CNN for letting us use this. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us here and sharing uh, this interview. My pleasure. How long are the the days when you're when you're shooting here? I mean, it, they're pretty it? long. Uh, I, I would say a short day is about eight hours, and our normal day could be twelve to thirteen. And often, toward the end of the week, we'll go fourteen, fifteen. And People don't realize that. I mean, even loved ones kind of uh, well, are you ever going to come home? You know, but it it takes a lot to put a, an hour of quality onto film. But we try to fill the time. We often, when, we're, when they're setting up for one scene, the director and the participants in the scene, the actors, will be in another room rehearsing the next scene that they're going to do huh. to kind of uh, use every available moment. Right, right. Because I know that uh, Aaron Sorkin, while being an incredible writer, is not necessarily known for, for getting scripts to you years in advance. Sometimes no, they're, they're Aaron, like- uh, his strong suit is also challenging because he writes out of passion. And he writes in the moment, and uh, when it's ready to come out, it does. The good news is it's always remarkable, and it's always brilliant material. But sometimes it comes the day before you have to film it. But, uh, you know, the trade-off, would I want a script three months in advance, or, no, let's be realistic, a week in advance with a lesser writer? No. No, I'd rather Aaron's words the night before than somebody else's a a week in advance. Excellent. You've just had the opportunity to work with some tremendous writers, David E. Kelly, Warren Warren Lee. I've been incredibly lucky with with writers. And and philosophically uh, and and intellectually, I do believe first comes the word. I'm I'm not being falsely modest. Mine is an interpretive art. I interpret other people's words. I can build a character. Uh, I think I'm a good actor, so I'm, I'm not demeaning myself. But first comes the word. The true creative art is the writing. I'm an interpreter. And uh, unless you, you have great raw material, you can only be so good. You know, you can make mediocre good, 
but you can't make mediocre great. And uh, Aaron gives us great raw material. It's a good point actually to start backing into the Emmy stuff. I know that one of the the episodes that you submitted mm -hmm. for your nomination, Bartlett for America, yes. which is a tremendous episode. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of tremendous writing in that, that oh. episode, of course, and we'll come to that. But there are also, as through the series, there are moments where the most arresting moments sometimes, there is no dialogue. It's oh, yeah. a reaction shot. Does the writing help you there when you have no dialogue, or is it is it just the character that's been built through the writing that leads you to that place? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think the writing sort of is the map of the journey your character goes on. So even if you're led to a point of no dialogue, you have all the previous dialogue that leads you up to that moment. Also, we're very fortunate here. I, and my theory is we all really wanted to do this gig. Actors, crew, directors. We knew when we saw the pilot that this was incredibly different and rare, this quality of writing. It's sometimes like a stage play. I mean, where in film does a character speak monologues that are this long sometime on the page? I mean, usually film's very quick like that. And uh, Aaron lets things breathe. And uh, we're under the careful supervision of uh, one of my heroes, Tommy Schlamme, who could inspire passion in a cockroach. I mean, this man is limitless with his uh, esprit and his passion and his creativity. And just when you feel you can't do any more, that there's nothing left, Tommy can re-inspire you. So we have a lot of careful and very brilliant eyes and hands watching us, and I think it keeps us well honed. Here we are in our fourth season, and as anxious to do the best work we possibly can as we were with the pilot. And we all knew we had something great. The wild card was how the audience was going to react. And you never know that. And there was some thought when we were starting that we might be a creative hit, we might be uh, uh, critically successful and a commercial failure. We didn't know. And our audience built slowly. And by the end of the first season, we had a good cross-section, and now we get, you know, 20 to 22 million a week watching us, so it's, it's thrilling. I think the New York Times panned the pilot, if I recall. The New York Times uh, turned on a dime. The New York Times is my paper, and I used to believe if it was uh, in the Times, it was in concrete. But uh, they are certainly not infallible. They hated our pilot, and then sometime during the first season, they turned on the dime, and we were somehow very popular in the New York Times. <laughs> but I've kept that initial review. I remember in the pilot, you know, you get these quick snapshots of all the characters. You get CJ in the, on the treadmill and mm -hmm, Toby on the mm -hmm. plane. And, but your character was the one that really set the tone, not only with that wonderful long tracking shot as you're walking through and showing us... Showing the West Wing. The, the West Wing, but just in the attitude, the sort of bad-mouthing the klutz president in the way that only a really true friend... That's right. Do. It was a thrilling uh, eight scenes, it was. And uh, I have to give Tommy Schlamme credit again because, as written, they were eight separate scenes. And we, we had the uh, good fortune of having the time to rehearse the pilot, which once the show is on and a hit, you have no time anymore. But we had a week's rehearsal, so we were able to plan what we were going to do and, and charge up. And, and Tommy came to me the first or the second day of rehearsal, and he said, I have an idea. I would like to put those eight scenes together in a walk and talk and have you sort of geographically show us the West Wing. It's going to be our first vision of the West Wing of this workplace. And I said, sounds very exciting. 
And he said, yeah, if we can pull it off, it'll be very good. It took us 17 takes and we did it. It was our first day. It was the first thing we shot and uh, it was thrilling. It was for a stage actor, which ostensibly I was uh, until about 10, 12 years ago, the first 20 years of my career was all on the stage. So to have that charge of being able to do eight scenes back to back without stopping, it's sort of like a stage performance, it's thrilling. The bad news with the walk and talk that size is if one person makes one mistake, you gotta go back to the beginning, yeah. you know? And I was thinking 17 at first sounds like a lot, but for something that complex, it I'm wasn't. Sure it's not a record. No, it wasn't, no, I think our record was 33. We did the longest, I believe, longest maybe walk and talk on film in our third or fourth episode, the first season. We took Bartlett from a speech in the hotel, through the hotel, through the kitchen, through the bowels of the hotel, all the way out to a motorcade. And that took us 33 takes. Wow. We took bets, ultimately. Finally, we were, <laughs> we were laying odds. You remember on, who won? Uh, yeah, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a ton of stage work, a number of movie roles. This is your second series, but there's never been a show that had this much popular and critical acclaim and, and awards. Prizes are great, and God to be nominated is thrilling, and it's a great honor, and you realize that your peers are stepping up and saying you did a really good job. But ultimately, it's cream on the cake, because the real prize is having this material. You know, that's the real prize for an actor. I mean... Unlike a lot of professions, uh, we're always looking for the next gig. Usually you'll find actors love their craft and the big secret is we do it for free, but don't tell anybody, you know? So that's a thrill in itself, being involved in this project, in this event. And then on top of that, to be nominated for a prize is, I mean, it really is thrilling. And it's a hard concept because if you think of art and, and thinking coming up with the best. I mean, my analogy is if you showed five paintings, you know, a Picasso, a Van Gogh, a Manet, a Monet, maybe a Rembrandt, and the winner is Rembrandt, you know. It's an odd Yeah, if you apply do, that yeah. analogy, you can see that it's a strange concept, but an honor. Right. And I'm really happy we've all been nominated because the truth of the matter is this is an ensemble and you, re you remove one piece and the machine is not working as well. So the true award, the one that really thrills all of us is the SAG award because th that one includes all of us. Right. First, that doesn't mean that personal ego is totally out of it, right? I mean, oh, you, no. And I'll tell you write, something. Do you write speeches? Oh, uh, no, I don't. They make me too nervous. Therefore, I get a 50-50 chance. I can totally fail or I can be inspired in the moment and be beyond what I think is capable for me. I really impress myself and go, God, I really free flowed and my ideas were there and it was heartfelt. But when I plan something and I try to write it down on the page, I, I can't ever come up with anything. This is my third nomination and I, I haven't prepared a speech yet. So we'll see. Especially if you believe in trends or you look for trends. You're one in Excelsis Deo, Richard Schiff gets the A plot in the Christmas episode and, Christmas. He, and he wins the Emmy. Second year, Noel, Noel Bradwick, which, you know, you have one of the most memorable scenes in that. The, uh, I love doing the Irish story. I get chills. I, I uh, it's a wonderful a story. A and then it's reprised almost like a signal to people in Bartlett for America. I know. Which is yours. I know. Is there any talk on the set about that trend, about, you know, kidding or otherwise? Well, I, I think so. I mean, it's either said or unsaid. Certainly, 
if you think you're going to get the Christmas episode, it puts a smile on your face because history has shown that they're very potent episodes. What the Christmas episode has done for Richard and for Brad and for myself is it's kind of singled out a character each time. And we don't often do that. Again, harking back to the true ensemble we are. When I did L.A. Law, which was another incredibly well-written show, we would have A storylines and B storylines and C storylines. So often, you know, unless you had the A storyline, you might be working two days of the whole event. Here, everybody is sort of equal balanced. You know, there are no real A storylines except on like a Christmas episode like that. You know, the fearful guy in me goes, well, I've gotten the Christmas episode. What if I don't win now? You know, so I got to be honest with you. It's a double-edged sword. It's, it's very thrilling. And on the other hand, uh, what am I going to do if I don't win? Jesus, I have all the ammunition here, you know. The storyline, of course, had a great deal to do with addiction. Yes. And that's something that, that you've dealt with, and it's something that Aaron Sorkin has dealt with. Yes. Is that totally a creation of his on the page, and you said you interpret it? Because I can't imagine that every person who's faced addiction, their story is the same. No, but there are through lines. I mean, the important thing to, to, to keep in mind for an addict, and, and I've been in recovery now 13 years, we tend to, as addicts, see ourselves as very unique, our problem, our own personal journey, why we pick up, why we use. The rooms, rehab, 12-step uh, programs, uh, part of their task is to show us how similar we all are, that we are basically garden variety addicts and uh, you don't drink or use because things are bad. You drink or you use because you are an addict and you can drink. I can, you know, in the old days when I was out there, I would celebrate good news with a drink. I would uh, give myself solace with bad news with a drink. If there were no news at all, I would uh, deal with the boredom with a drink. It's sometimes a lot of responsibility to be a poster child for sobriety because my own sobriety is a huge responsibility. I don't want to be responsible for everybody else. So that's the double-edged sword there. But I've been asked a lot about, you know, Leo's alcoholism and, and addiction. And the common question is, did Aaron base it on you? I had no answer. So I finally took the question to the man. And I said, Aaron, you know, I'm asked this very often. Is uh, Leo's addiction based on my and only you have the answer. And he said, um, no, not particularly. It's mine. It's yours. It's all of my friends who are addicted. So that's the answer from the writer. I've read that when he was first thinking about casting, he said, who can we get who's like John Spencer? Apparently, like, oh, why don't we get John Spencer? Oh, we'll never get John Spencer. So apparently he said that. That's an old classic Hollywood story. I mean, I, I, I had not known that, and that knowledge came down to me. I also didn't realize until a good year into the show that I was the first character cast. I knew the audition was good. I, I did. I knew the audition was good. I loved the material so that I was obsessed with it. And I learned all those eight scenes. So when I came and I read for Aaron and John uh, Wells and, and Tommy, I had it all memorized. So uh, Aaron said to me, you're not going to use your book. And I said, no, no, no. I, I, I want to put the book aside so I can act. And he read with me and I said, you're going to read with me? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, how are you going to watch me and read with me? He said, no, I, it's the way I do it. So Aaron and I acted those, uh, those eight <laughs> scenes together, and it was thrilling. And I finished that audition on a high, and I knew I had done my work. And really, as an actor, that's all you can do, because the choice 
is somebody else's. And the most control you have over the situation is to give the best example of your craft as possible. More than that, you can't do. Ultimately, that can get you the job and it may not get you the job. But I felt very positive about it. And by the time I, got, I drove back to my house here, the offer was already on my, uh, on my telephone machine. That's great. Returning to, to Bartlett for America mm -hmm. just for a second, Aaron has made various comments that he's not necessarily trying to take stands about issues just because he presents the issues on That's the show, right. that it's entertainment, it's dramatic. Mm -hmm. At the same time, with his public acknowledgement of his battles, with yours, with a storyline like that, it doesn't take a leap for a lot of people to at least wonder if a statement is being made. And I know a lot of people who have battled various addictions were thrilled to see the representation, to see you explaining that your brain just works differently, that it's, that how can someone not want to feel this way? The classic statement, uh, wonderful Joanna Gleason says to me, I don't understand how you could have a drink. I don't understand how after everything you worked for, how on that day of all days you could be so stupid. That's why, you know, something like Nancy Reagan's just saying no. That's work. Just wants to, uh, I mean, talk about, you want to push a button of anger in me. Because coming from a place of addiction, that is such a pathetic response. And it's evil. I mean, I don't think the woman sat around thinking she wanted to be evil. But that did so much harm. Because you have addicts out there going, why can't I say no? What's wrong with me? I can't say no. The president's wife said, just say no. I should be that strong. I should say no. And it's just a lack of intelligence and a lack of understanding. And it doesn't help anybody. That kind of thinking doesn't help anybody. Once we can realize it's a disease like cancer, like pneumonia, like any other disease, and doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, it's just something that your body is dealing with, then you can attack it in a logical and an intelligent way. But to make it a moral choice is just stupid. And so I think... Bravo, Aaron. I think another thing that Aaron's done remarkably is to show that there are people battling addiction that are in government positions, which one has never thought about before. I mean, I never knew. I don't know if I'm talking out of school. There is an AA meeting on the Hill. And it doesn't surprise me, but I never thought about it before I did the episode. I never thought about it at all. Have you seen a lot of changes in Leo McGarry's character has there been an arc, or has he remained pretty constant over the three seasons and now? I think there's been a reveal. I think Leo's a pretty consistent character on, on some levels. I love Leo. I, I mean, I, I see Leo as a, as a much greater evolved human being than, than I am. Leo's a hero in my eyes, and how nice to play somebody you have that much respect for. Mm -hmm. I respect his devotion to the government and to the country and to the office of president. Not necessarily just his friend, but to the office of the presidency. And in my three years on this show, that's one of the ideas that has really become honed in my own mind, that it really is the office more than the man who sits there. I think, you know, uh, Leo is a pragmatist. Leo is much more conservative than I am. And I think Leo is more conservative than, than Bartlett. I think Bartlett's, you know, uh, what the right wing might call a bleeding heart liberal, my kind of man. I think Leo is, the, is a wonderful human being, an instrument of the West Wing because he balances Bartlett. I mean, Bartlett is a great leader. He's a, in many ways saint-like and, and a wonderful human being, but not necessarily as pragmatic as Leo is in the world of politics. 
And Leo, who is loves and is devoted to this man, his best friend and the president, kind of has to balance it, has to show Bartlett a way of moving through the political red tape and making the right political choices while not being a hypocrite or, you know, selling his ideas out. And sometimes it's a balancing act. And I think, I think Leo, having fought in Vietnam, as most warriors hate war after they've been there, you know, it's a last resolve when nothing else works. Those must be amazing scenes to play, you and Martin. I mean, it's not only you're working with, with another tremendously talented actor at a variety of levels, but it's a very intricate friendship. Alice and Janney saw the uh, uh, Barlet for America, and she came to Martin and I, and she said it's the most beautiful love story between two men that she had ever seen. It brings tears to my eyes because it's, it's purely that. It's one human being having a love and a respect for another human being in their life. It's not a sexual love story. It's not a romantic love story. But it's a pure kind of love and devotion and respect. And I am so honored to be able to play that. First of all, to be able to play that with Martin, who has become one of my closest friends in my life. I just adore the man. And as an actor, the ease of the task I've been given. I mean, I've given the role of a man who is devoted to this man, who he thinks is great, who he thinks is capable of leadership and greatness and kindness, who's a unique individual. Well, that's exactly the way John feels about Martin. I would love to be as good a human being as Martin Sheen is. And I, I, I don't mean that pretentiously at all. I mean, he's a remarkable, I'm not sure I've ever met another person like him in my entire life. And then to have the honor to act with him and to act in a parallel environment, two friends, two friends. That, uh, that final scene is, is one of the ones I was talking about where there's almost no dialogue. You, you unwrap this napkin that he saved that you yeah. all these years ago and you see Leo just desperately trying not to disintegrate and cry in front of, in front in front of, of his, his friend. friend. That was awfully nice of you. You're working with a tremendous company of actors. If there's a personal connection among the staff that we see that Leo has to someone besides the president, it's probably to Josh Lyman. Almost in a mentoring fashion, right? I mean, Josh is a little Leo, (laughs) you know, and I don't mean little in a diminutive form. I mean, he is my deputy chief of staff and he's a remarkable political mind and a remarkable intellect. I'm talking about Josh now. Sometimes the lines become uh, very vague. And of course, Leo's personal connection with him, with the Irish story, with him getting a shrink uh, for Josh. I think there's a paternal thing going on there, too. You've got to realize Leo has left family, and this has become his family. I mean, I think one of the most remarkable lines I've had in three years, and it was remarkable when I read it, and I went to Aaron and I said, you know, if I say this, I really have to mean it because it's quite potent when your wife asks you. It's not more important than your marriage. It is more important than my marriage right now. These few years while I'm doing this, yes, it's more important than my marriage. That to me was one of the hardest, most intense moments of the whole, including Bartlett for America, including all of that, because it was so starkly real and honest. I mean, nine out of 10 people would say, well, no, of course not. My marriage is most important, but this is important too. But Leo fessed up at that moment in his life and for better or worse told the truth and it cost him his his marriage. But you know what? I've met the staff 
of both uh, President Clinton's and President Bush's. And we're not, we're not unrealistic in our level of devotion here. That's what these people are like who work in the West Wing. They are, it's their life. And their hours are as unique as ours. When I first met John Podesta, who I adore, uh, uh, I really got to know him. And what an incredibly fine man he is. And uh, people ask, well, did, you know, did you talk about inside things with him? No, actually, we never did. We talked basic shop, like two guys who work at a, a, at a factory. What are your hours like? Do you have to come in on Saturdays? And I was amazed to know that their hours are as unique as ours. Their weekends are not their own. Their families are not their own. So Aaron's not creating a, a, a fictional world here necessarily on that level. My absolute truth and inner feeling about this whole event is that there is no irreplaceable member of this entire production except for one person. And when I say that, people usually go, Martin Sheen. And I go, oh, Martin's great. No, it's, it's Aaron Sorkin. There's one thing I wanted to ask you about. There's an incredible amount of detail in the show, and some continuity errors are going to creep in. Leo is described as being a man of Chicago at one point. And now another he's Josh Boston. Says he's Boston right? Irish Catholic, yeah. I don't know. I always thought I was from Chicago uh, until, uh, uh, or Boston, until recently I have been now made from Chicago. How I justify that? Irish Catholic working class Chicago, Irish Catholic working class Boston, Irish working class New York. It's the same it's, geography. It's, it's I mean, it's, as big a it's the same lead, block, you know. It might not be the same apartment house, but it's the same block. So it's easy, it's easy enough for me to justify. Leo's wealth also. Leo is apparently a very, very wealthy guy. Yeah. Sometime between Vietnam and serving uh, in Congress and on the cabinet. I, uh, I asked Aaron about that. It's legal practice. It's uh, advisory positions in legal service. And it's le the lecture circuit because he was secretary of labor. Right. So he makes a lot, he's made a lot of money on the lecture right. circuit. Although also, I, think, I have an idea. His wife was very rich. I think he married very patrician. Sarah Botsford played she, it. She, she was very and patrician. she can certainly play And, you know, uh, right. she was uh, one of the heads of the Red Cross, I mean, the character. And so I think I, I see her as a kind of society woman. Right. So we're I think their money. Mallory went to private school. Absolutely. And, yeah, so had all goes together. One of the things, see, I love the little... What Aaron gives you in raw material, you can take and run with as an actor. The little specific things that not, maybe, you know, they're not talked about, but they're mentioned slightly 10 different times and then it adds up and you go, oh, wow. Leo's appropriateness. I mean, Leo never, never calls Jed, Jed in the Oval. I think he's done it once when they were having an argument never goes into the Oval Office without buttoning his jacket or putting his jacket on. These are little pits of behavior that I have incorporated with the knowledge and the signposts that Aaron has given me in the writing, but have bloomed into a lovely character trait. I love that about Leo. I love the, the line where the, where the president goes to me. Uh, he goes, you know, uh, Leo, uh, most people leave a casual set of clothes here, so if they're working late, uh, you know, I would like you to do the same. And I go, I do. I mean, and the president looks at me and says, don't you see I'm not wearing a tie? I mean, and, and means it totally right. seriously. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the convention of all, always calling him Sir and Mr. President, that was Bobby Kennedy's, you know. That was a Bobby Kennedy. When, when Bobby was with John publicly, it was always Sir or Mr. President. And I picked up on that knowing the Kennedy history, and I thought it was perfect for Leo because that's a dynamic when 
you are not only serving this man, but you are his best friend, is you've got to keep, at least at the workplace, those lines very separate. And to call him Mr. President and Sir is a constant reminder that it's the office more than the man. You are rigid about certain things where you don't want to deviate because you've decided what's important. You've decided the way oh, absolutely. you support yourself. And Oh, I, I would yeah. say uh, Leo's a complete control freak. Absolutely. Not only in his own life, but in trying to keep, uh, keep the natives not restless, you know, and, and that's another wonderful thing about the character is I find myself plunked right in the middle of the president and his staff. So I'm almost the liaison and the interpreter, interpreting for him to them and interpreting for them to him. The linchpin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a it's a unique and rewarding character and and challenging because it becomes so thick the more you, you delve into it. And that's the great thing about our drama. There are drawbacks about you know playing the same character week after week after week. But one of the high and strong suits about it is you get to know more and more and more about the character. So suddenly you're learning how that character would react in any given situation. It was great talking to you. It was wonderful. Talking Let's to you. talk I again. appreciate it. Thanks. So, thanks. thanks. I'll, I'll make sure and give Katie my card. Thanks. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the West Wing Weekly. We'll be back in a week. Hence, weekly. (laughs) Um, You can find us all kinds of places online, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, thewestwingweekly.com. If you want to tweet at David Daniel to thank him profusely for giving us this interview, for arranging it with CNN so that we could have it and so that we could hear this, he's at CNNLADavid. Thanks so much, and thanks to all of you guys for listening. Why don't we try something new this week? If you have something positive to say, just (laughs) start it with your comment with three asterisks and end it with three asterisks, and that way we can read just those comments and tweets. (laughs) The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, which is a delightful, curated selection of the finest podcasts available in the world. (laughs) You can learn more about all of them at radiotopia.fm. Radiotopia was made possible by a grant from the Knight Foundation and by listeners like you who donate to keep the lights on in the Radiotopia office and here in the uh, West Wing Weekly offices, metaphorically. The West Wing Weekly was made possible by the skills of Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller. Margaret Miller, who appeared on mic today for the first time. If you'd like to tweet at either of them, Zach is at ZM Suited and Margaret is at Regina Mint. Okay. Okay. What's next? Radio Tokyo. From PRX. Thanks to Adzerk for providing their ad serving platform to Radiotopia.